Welcome to New Hope's teaching podcast. This is an excerpt from our Sunday morning service. Visit newhopepdx.org teaching for notes, worship, and church announcements. Stay up to date with our teaching series and events by downloading our app. Just text New Hope PDX app to 77977. Enjoy this week's lesson. What is one awesome gift you have received? Uh, if, you're, if you're watching with somebody at home or wherever you're watching this, uh, turn to them and, and share what, what comes to your mind, if appropriate. Uh, if you're alone, you can just say it out loud, but what's one awesome gift you have received? No kidding, one of my favorite gifts I've ever received, a, a picture of it will come up, but it's a, a little Christmas ornament from the movie National Lampoon's Christmas uh, Vacation. Uh, Clark Griswold, and uh, there's that moment, if you've seen it, where he's, he's putting the lights together finally, and they, the, the house lights up. And why it's such an awesome gift is uh, my wife, who gave it to me uh, years ago, knows I love Christmas, knows I love Christmas decorations, and knows I love the movie Christmas Vacation. We watch it uh, almost every year. So when I open it, it was a surprise, and you press a little button, and it plays the Hallelujah Chorus, which is awesome. And I, I kid you not, when I open it, I giggled like a little kid because it was like you're getting a gift from somebody that just knows you well. And every year when I get it out of the bin and put it on the tree, it brings me great delight. Our family just experienced another awesome gift. Uh, A little over two years ago, my wife and I were going to celebrate our 20th wedding anniversary, and we booked a trip to Hawaii, and then COVID came and ruined everything. So as we began to emerge from that, we said, hey, we got to do that. And a good friend of ours uh, got got wind of that and uh, reached out and said, hey, we'd like to give you our timeshare in Hawaii for a week. And I was like, let me pray about that for like two seconds. <laughs> That's an awesome gift. So I've never been to Hawaii. I think it's my last state. And we went to the island of Kauai a, a week or so ago. And my goodness, it's incredible. So we, uh, we hiked and we biked and we kayaked and we snorkeled and we went on a boat into sea caves and it was splendid. As we got done, the, the locals were telling us, uh, when you go back, uh, tell everyone you had a great week in Maui. <laughs> so they're trying to keep Kauai a secret. So outstanding gift. What's, what's one awesome gift you have received? How did that gift make you feel when you received it? How did it change or affect or shape or transform your relationship with the person who gave it to you? We're going to explore that a little bit uh, today. We're second week in a series entitled, What Does That Mean? And each of the nine weeks in this series, we're going to take an important Bible word and look at it in its original context. What does the Bible say about it? And then look at uh, how we misunderstand it or we get it wrong, as we talked about last week. We get words wrong. Uh, our family, if you, had, if you saw last week's sermon, I made the reference of song lyrics, getting song lyrics wrong, and one of them was Tiny Dancer by Elton John. My wife here is holding me closer 
Tony Danza. And of course, we went home after that and listened to that song and just just giggles. Sorry if I ruined that song for you. So last week's word was tov. Uh, This week's word, that was a Hebrew word. This week's word is a Greek word. So our work, uh, our word for this week is Harris. And you kind of get a little bit of uh, phlegm in the back of your throat. It's like a hard H, Harris. And it is a common word. It means grace. Grace. So each week we have a, we t- we're going to bounce around scripture yet again today because we want to look at how scripture treats this word, the Greek word. So we'll look at it most dominantly in the New Testament, but we want to have a, a reading of scripture that utilizes this word. So Denise is going to read our scripture today. Watch for that word, grace. Take it away, Denise. Our scripture reading this morning is found in the book of Titus, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. This is the word of the Lord. So again, this word harris means uh, grace. It can mean uh, also charming or attractive or a favor or benevolence, but it's best uh, translated and most often uh, the best definition of this word grace is simply gift. It's a pretty simple concept. Uh, You can try taking even some of the scriptures we read today or as you're reading back through scriptures that you come upon this word grace. Even in your mind, you can kind of X out that word grace and just write gift over top. It kind of transforms how you see uh, some of the scriptures. So we'll dig deep into this word. Uh, Here's one example that you can uh, do this uh, marking out and using the word uh, gift instead of grace. But since you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge, in complete earnestness and in love, we have kindled in you. See that you also excel in this grace or this gift of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace or the gift of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. This idea of grace is fused heavily into our English Uh, vernacular. Here's some examples. Uh, We can be gracious or grateful. We can congratulate. We can pay gratuity. We can be gratuitous. Uh, We can fall from grace. We can become an ingrate or be a disgrace. If we commit an act of treason, that's called persona non grata. Uh, It's typical that when people sit down for a meal, they say a blessing or they say grace. I've really gotten into this History Channel reality show called Alone. Anyone else? Alone, basically. I think there's seven seasons now. They send hardened wilderness contestants out in the wilderness and they got to like 
hang out there for 100 days, see who, who lasts longest, they can take 10 items. It's fascinating. They're alone, they have camera equipment, they're filming everything. What is a thread throughout all the seasons is, and you can probably figure this out whether you've seen the show or not, the thing that they need more than anything over those 100 days is find a way to eat. And that's really driven all of society until modern era, people worked to eat. Like you got out of bed every morning and your job was to find food to eat. And that's the job largely of these contestants. And it's just struck me as they uh, catch a fish or eat berries or uh, eat other things that are acceptable to eat or, or maybe kill game. They're super grateful. They're so delighted. Uh, even sometimes holding up their kill saying, thank you for your life that you're giving to me. And in our modern Western mindset, I know I take that for granted when I sit down and say grace, but the history of that saying grace is recognizing that what we're about to eat is a gift. It's given to us. So that's how we represent it in our minds and our hearts. Um, know that this idea, even though it's a Greek word, and sometimes we think that grace is just represented in the New Testament when Jesus arrives on the scene, but that would be untrue. Grace is all over the Old Testament as well. When God introduces himself uh, to Moses in Exodus, he says, I am a gracious and compassionate God. The covenant, the Abrahamic covenant that God made with Abraham, called that his family, and then Israel that led to Jesus, was a covenant of grace. God said, I will do this covenant. It's not dependent on you. In Exodus 19, uh, God declares that he carried Israel on eagles' wings to himself. That's just a brief survey of graces everywhere in the Old Testament. But we're gonna principally look at it in the New Testament day since it is a Greek word. So what does the Bible reveal about grace? First, we see that grace is gift. Secondly, we see that in the Bible, grace is a concept that is undeserved. Sometimes with definitions, we get justice and mercy and grace all mixed up. So here's some simple, probably incomplete, but simple definitions of some key biblical concepts. Justice is when someone gets what they deserve. Mercy is when you, someone doesn't get what they deserve. And grace is when you get a free gift that you don't deserve. And grace, we can understand grace in our heads. I suspect most of you understand that definition, but grace is super, super hard to understand in our hearts simply because we live in a graceless world. We don't treat one another with grace. Grace isn't an operating principle in a lot of how we do life. The Summer Olympics start uh, on the 23rd. I love watching the Olympics. I'm excited to watch uh, Simone Biles and Katie uh, Lidicke, the swimmer, and uh, Damian Lillard, obviously, and, and many other uh, from Team USA. Go USA. Uh, I just love gathering with my family, not in watching those events. There are also some really weird Olympic events. I did a little research and events that you're like, really, should that be an Olympic event? Yeah, we've got synchronized swimming, which is like a form of, like, I guess, water ballet. That's weird that that's an Olympic event. Impressive, but weird. Table tennis. I love table tennis or ping pong. But is that an Olympic event? It's kind of odd. Uh, one of the oddest looking Olympic events in the summer is uh, fast walking. <laughs> you walk, it just looks so odd. You can't run, and yet these fast walkers have a faster pace than most runners. It's just an odd deal. Uh, but my favorite summer, uh, summer Olympic event is the pentathlon. 
So I had to list these things because I'm not going to remember. The pentathlon combines fencing, swimming, horseback riding, running, and pistol shooting. <laughs> it's just who created that? Uh, but to be honest, that sounds really awesome. So I can't wait. It doesn't matter what the event is, whether it's something we know well or whether it's something like the pentathlon. They all work the same way. Uh, the gold, uh, the silver, the bronze medal are going to be given to the contestants that perform the best. That's just how it works. And that's really how most of our world works as well. Uh, our culture that we live in, our society has been called uh, a meritocracy. It's driven by merit in that almost everything we do, there's winners and uh, there's losers. It's a, a kind of a graceless world in which we live. So in comes this huge principle that drives and fuels the kingdom of God, grace, which is for the undeserved. And we have trouble understanding it and incorporating it into our minds and our hearts. Author Philip Yancey years ago uh, wrote an article. It's one of my favorite titles of an article. He, the name of the article was The Atrocious Mathematics of the Gospel. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you want to read that. That's interesting. And Yancey makes uh, the profound point that grace doesn't make any economic sense. The math of grace just doesn't work. And uh, we live in a world that we get what we deserve. We deserve what we get. Grace is opposite. Grace gives us stuff we don't deserve, and that's the main driving force of the kingdom of God. It rules the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is like this different economy, and we're simply not used to it. So this is why at a base level, sometimes we maybe understand the definition of grace, but we really don't understand it. We struggle to implement it into our lives. Scholars will uh, say that grace is incongruous. Uh, that's a fancy word that means it doesn't fit. You're like, ah, that's weird. Uh, sometimes I will be driving and um, I'll see, I, I guess I'm, I'm making this story of my mind, but I, I think it's probably true. I'll see a 16-year-old driving like an $80,000 brand new vehicle that I'm guessing has been given to them by his wealthy parents who gave him, him or her a generous gift. And I'm driving my 2005 Prius. <laughs> My initial uh, thought is probably envy and maybe a little bitterness, but uh, also that that's an incongruous gift. That doesn't fit for a kid, uh, whether they're a great kid or not, that probably hasn't worked a day in, in life to make money uh, driving an $80,000 car. That is, is grace. And so at times, grace, when we experience it and see it, can even be offensive. So there's another thing the Bible reveals that grace is undeserved. The Bible also reveals that Jesus, of all the gifts we are given by God, and we're given a lot, Jesus is God's greatest gift. So we, we know this verse, it's well known, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, here it is, that he gave his only son, his greatest gift, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Uh, another verse that bears us out, but the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? That's Romans 5.15. And then again in Romans, Paul says it pretty clearly, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the great irony of the Christmas story. The wise men are coming with these gifts for baby Jesus, who is the gift. 
So that's another thing the Bible reveals. God gives us a lot of gifts, but the greatest gift is Jesus. And then finally, the scriptures reveal that uh, grace is the gift that keeps on giving. I think that most of us that grew up in church know about Christianity, understand that the Bible puts forth this idea that grace saves, that we are saved by grace through faith. That, that's Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that we just came out of that book. Uh, we can't save ourselves. It takes a gift of God. But sadly, uh, that is the full extent of the gospel or the good news for most Christians. And, and it's not. They, they, we understand the need for God to save us. We say a prayer, maybe at a young age, acknowledging that need. But then we go out and we lead graceless lives. So in that way, we, we have a woefully incomplete understanding of the gospel because the, the, the Bible reveals grace not only as the, the power that saves us, but the power that goes on and then transforms us. Grace is the gift, Scripture tells us, that keeps on giving. Uh, my dad uh, loves to give um, stocks to my, our daughters for Christmas. So he, he started this when he was really young. It's super generous. Um, but picture the seed on Christmas morning. They give our girls other awesome gifts as well. But we'll be ripping open the presents on Christmas morning. And there's, you know, dolls and Legos and cool books and other things as they grew older. And, and, and it's a delight. And those are exciting things to receive. And then my dad will hand them each an, an envelope. And they sit down and they open up a letter. And it's like, hey, on this date, you've been given three stocks of Apple which is pretty awesome. And then it goes on a letter my dad describes how that stock has performed and how it will perform. And they're like, you know, when they were young, they're like four or five. And they're just like, and I'm like, tell granddad, thank you. You know, I'm thinking this is awesome. Uh, but they may not fully appreciate that stock now, but they will because that's the gift that keeps on giving. And that's just like grace. Uh, so grace not only saves us, but grace also transforms us to be the people that God called us to be, created us to be. It has a restorative effect. So we look to Jesus for salvation, but we uh, experience grace every time we continue to look to Jesus. So let's go back to the, the scripture that Denise read earlier. And I think it's self-evident that grace is not a one-stop shop. The grace is the gift that keeps giving. So this is what Paul writes to Pastor Timothy. It says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Yeah, we get that. Sadly, for a lot of people, that's it. That's all. That's the whole story. That's just the gospel. That's not just the gospel. That's only one piece. Paul goes on. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good." Grace saves us, but grace, Paul tells us, also teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It teaches us to live upright and godly lives. This is a grace that reenters our life again and again and again. In the end, uh, Paul tells Titus that grace helps us do tov that we talked about last week. It helps us to do good. It's not a one-stop shop. Grace is something we're continually supposed to draw from. Grace is the gift that keeps on giving. We see this in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. 
No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Paul's like, all those years I'm planting churches and, and, and laboring on behalf of the gospel, the grace of God was doing that work in me and fueling me. Uh, in 2 Corinthians, Paul is being tormented by a messenger of Satan. Uh, we don't know exactly what's going on there, and he, he pleads like any of us would if we, if we were having some struggle like that, three times with God to remove it, and God said no. God, for, for God's purposes, allowed it to remain. And then uh, in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, in light of that, Paul writes, but he was realizing that God's grace was sufficient for him. And then finally, and this principle is everywhere, but one last example, and maybe my favorite. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. I thought of that scene, that Old Testament book, uh, Esther, where Esther goes in front of the, the king, and she is the queen, but uh, there, there, there's lots of stuff going on, and she, she must get permission, and she doesn't really have it. So she's literally risking her life to go in front of the king that had the power of life or death over Esther. And it's just a scene when you're reading it, and you don't know how it's going to play out. It ends up playing out okay, but you're just like, oh, you know, like this, this powerful king that you're cowering in front of. The very opposite is the scene the writer of Hebrews paints for all of us that are in Jesus, that have looked to Jesus for life, that God's our Father, and we come before the throne of grace. Isn't that an awesome idea? The throne of giving, and that we do so to ask freely, and the writer of Hebrews says even we can ask boldly. I picture myself sometimes when I'm praying and coming into the throne room of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and God's like, hop up here, just jump on up here. What you, I'm your dad. What do you need? How can I give you grace? And we do that so that we can find mercy and grace in time of need. So let's not all pray to that truncated and very narrow view of the gospel, that grace is just operating when we initially look to Jesus for salvation. That's important. It is. But scripture tells us that grace is the gift that keeps on giving. There's way more to the story than just that initial experience of grace. All right, each week we're going to look at misunderstandings of our word. And of course we're going to have misunderstandings. These are ancient words. Uh, there's translation difficulties sometimes and cultural difficulties. So we want to spend time not in a judgy way or to cast shame, but we want to try to get these words right. So here's three ways in which I think that we often can get grace wrong. First, we get it wrong when we uh, say that grace is cheap. I'm making my way through a, a newish biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian and pastor uh, who, who fought against uh, Hitler and, and ended up giving his life. He was profound, a thinker, but also uh, he lived it out. And so, uh, again, once again, reading the story, and it's, it's, a, it's a long book, so I'm still making my way through it. I'm always shocked and alarmed that in like the mid-1930s, late 1930s, Germany was a heavily Christianized nation. Most people would have said that they were Christian. They had some of those brilliant Christian thinkers and theologians and pastors on the face of the earth. And yet like that, that Christian nation bent the knee to a totalitarian madman. It's shocking. We think like, oh, that could never happen to us. But we should be humble and look back and see how quickly it happened to Germany. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of the few who did not bend the knee. 
and he stood strong in the name of Jesus for what was right, and it cost him his life. Bonhoeffer's perhaps most famous and well-known book is called The Cost of Discipleship, uh, and Bonhoeffer challenges the church that he felt like the church, his, his German believers, church people, were following a gospel of cheap grace. He kind of coined this term. And he felt like the reason they so quickly bent the knee is they just had a very truncated, narrow view of the gospel uh, that was cheap grace. So um, it's, it's similar to go back to the gift to, to, uh, of the trip to Hawaii. Now, grace is free, but grace is not cheap. And so that, that, that trip was free to us, but it wasn't cheap to the people who gave it to us. Uh, we, we took time in our week in Hawaii. You gotta, it was like 90 minutes. Where, and I'm sure a lot of you know this. Where we go to the timeshare meeting where they're trying to get you to buy a timeshare because they give you, you know, reason to, to, to go. And uh, we're like the whole time, like, I'm not going to buy a timeshare. I'm not going to. You, you got to stay focused because they're really good at it. But I think we learned a lot and we learned uh, how expensive the gift was that we had been given. We, it, it deepened our experience. It deepened our affection and our appreciation of the gift. It was not. It was free gift to us, but it was not cheap. Um, my daughters, when they were, um, you know, younger years ago, um, you know, two, three, four, you know, I'd have a birthday or Christmas and they would, they would give me a gift. And the gift sometimes would literally be like a white sheet of paper with like one crayon mark on it. <laughs> and I was like, Dada, happy birthday. Here's your gift. And, you know, it's, it, it didn't take a much time, right? They could have spent a little more time. And, you know, you're, you know when, you're, when they're that, you're like, oh, thank you for the gift. And then you know, as soon as they go to bed, it goes in the trash kind of deals. Sorry, girls. As they've grown older, uh, they now give really incredible gifts, uh, pieces of art. They're both very talented or things that they've written or, or and they give them and I, you know, I immediately get choked up uh, and I have a box in my closet that I, I, for keepsakes, for things that they've given me like that, that um, are costly. They've spent time, they've invested themselves, they're a piece of them there. And I promise you, if if a fire came and that, that whole game, like, what would you grab? That would be one of the things that I would grab first. It's the difference between a gift that we that probably didn't take much time, it's a cheaper gift, versus something that's costly. There's a meaningful difference. And Bonhoeffer would argue that, you know, there's a meaningful difference in seeing a, a, a gospel that's rooted in a grace that we consider cheap. It's just n not much to us versus something that we understand profoundly how costly the gift was. Let me quote Bonhoeffer, and this is a little bit lengthier quote than I would normally quote, but one, I, want, I have an agenda. I want to get you to read Bonhoeffer, and um, I can't just sum it up. So let me just read this quote. This is what Bonhoeffer says about cheap grace and costly grace. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his net and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it causes us to follow. It is grace because it causes us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. 
Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. Ye were bought with a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. The second way we misunderstand grace is that uh, we think grace has no strings attached. John Barclay, you probably don't know his name unless you're into really nerdy theological readings. Uh, he is a theologian's theologian. Uh, he is one of the, the brightest minds in the New Testament theological world. And John, uh, many years ago, said he kind of was reflecting himself like, I don't think anybody's ever studied grace in its original context in the Greco-Roman world. I think he was probably right. We say all the time the Bible was written to us, but not for us. To really understand what the Bible has for us, we have to understand what the original writers meant when they used a word and what the original hearers understood. And Barclay's like, I think we just assume a lot about this word uh, grace. So he, he came out with this monumental book a few years ago called Paul and the Gift. And it's probably one of the greatest works of New Testament scholarship in the last 50 years. And Barclay uncovered some really interesting things that lead to, I think, a misunderstanding about grace. He uncovered that in the first century context, the Greco-Roman world, in which Paul uh, wrote, in which the churches received his letter, in which they had a common understanding of this word, charis, the grace, that the gift giving was common in the first century just like it is now, but probably even more common, that gifts were given freely, but when gifts were given, there was absolutely an expectation of return. Uh, Barclay uncovered that in the first century, an initial gift was seen as the beginning of a relationship that was built around this ideal and marked by mutual reciprocity. Uh, gift giving was a means of creating and sustaining relationships in the first world. Like, like now, uh, there were different categories of loans and wages and trades that were not gift giving. There was no legal obligation in the first century world if somebody gave you a gift like now that you had to repay them. But there was a strong expectation that you would. It would have been dishonorable not to show gratitude and not to return the gift. So gift giving was, a scene, uh, was seen as the beginning of an ongoing, deepening relationship of grace. It's represented by an image that will come up called, uh, it's a famous image called the three graces or the three charities based off our Greek word. It's this dance of these three characters that are giving and giving and giving and giving. And it's the dance of gift and return that just continually reinforces and deepens the relationship. That's how first century people thought about it. That's how Paul thought about it. That's how the people who read his letters thought about it. We think that uh, a, free, a grace is a free gift with no strings attached. No one in the first century would have thought that at all. We can't hold together this idea that grace is a free gift, but that there's also strings attached, but they absolutely could. There was no inherent tension for them and that those two things were not mutually exclusive. And this has to inform our idea of grace because clearly Paul had this in mind when he used uh, the words. So Paul saw that grace was a free gift from God that was not deserved and was incongruous, absolutely true. We understand that it did not fit, but Paul also would have absolutely expected everyone who receives the greatest gift ever, the free gift of salvation in Christ from God, that they would be ushered into a lifetime that is knit together of mutual reciprocity and mutual gift giving. Paul would have expected the initial recipients of God's grace in Jesus to then be profoundly changed people. 
Paul would have expected any of us that look to Jesus for salvation, have tasted God's grace and had that initial gift to enter into a lifelong relationship with God where we're changed into, to use Barclay's terms, agents of grace. Again, once this becomes clear for us that grace does have strings attached, it's free, it's undeserved, and it enters us into a relationship where there's expectations of return, then it transforms how we read a lot of scriptures. So let me give you a few examples of this. Let's just go back to our letter we spent 11 weeks in because we're somewhat familiar with it. So again, in chapter two, Paul tells us that we're saved uh, you know, by grace through faith to a life of good works. We, that's, that's key to that letter. But then he goes on in 4.1 and says this. He says, as a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. There's clearly an expectation of return on Paul's part. Then again, in, in Ephesians 5.1, Paul writes, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice sin. Most pointedly in Romans 12.1, uh, Paul writes to the Romans and he, and he talks about all the things that they have received as a gift from God. And then he turns and he says, in light of that, he challenges them to live their lives as a living sacrifice. So clearly there's an expectation of return. Barclay notes that we often think of God, and, and, and this is a distorted image of God, kind of like Santa. And so Santa, as we know, the song says, is making a list and checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty or nice. Santa only gives gifts to kids that deserve them. Doesn't He gives cold and naughty kids. It's, it's, it's earned gifts. That's, that's not the, the biblical concept of grace. Grace is undeserved in Scripture. So Santa's not giving graciously. Uh, Santa's giving according to, to merit, and it's familiar with us. And then Santa doesn't expect a gift in return. Uh, no one writes to the North Pole to thank Santa for the gift or then sends a gift back to Santa like that's unheard of. So we kind of have this concept. Barclay notes that God and the idea of grace is the exact opposite, that God is giving us this gift that's incongruous. It's beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. It's undeserved. We don't deserve it. But there's absolutely an expectation of return. That, that, that God is, is, we receive this gift as any first century person would know, as, as must have been in Paul's mind, that we're entered into this relationship of mutual reciprocity. That grace does not leave us unchanged, that there are strings attached. And we're expected to be transformed by God's grace into agents of grace. Incredible stuff, challenging stuff. For me, as somebody who's been teaching about grace for many, many years, it's been transformative. It's opened up pathways that I had not seen in scriptures before. Finally, uh, how do we misunderstand grace? We misunderstand what we think is grace is given to the unworthy. Now, grace is given to the undeserving, but not the unworthy. And that's a key, key difference. I've been reading a, another book by a historian that's uh, it's a hard book to read, but it's going back to Nazi Germany and the Holocaust, to American slavery, to the caste system in India, and kind of looking at these horrible times in history and the things that we do to one another. And this author notes uh, you know, some threads that connect all of them. And she said, no one is ever gonna enslave another human or degrade another human to the, to the lowest echelons and levels or um, try to exterminate another human's life 
um, without dehumanizing the human first. Like we don't have that capacity. We can't like probably do that on a large scale to other humans without first dehumanizing them, without first convincing ourselves that they are subhuman. And I think in a way we talk about God's grace sometimes in a way that dehumanizes people. And I don't even think we know that it's happening. I think it's a tragic misunderstanding of grace. We see this in, a, in probably our most famous song about grace, uh, Amazing Grace by John Newton. Incredible song, deeply love it. But there's this line that, uh, that God saved a wretch like me. You know the line. And in all fairness to Newton, who wrote this a long time ago, in his original context, wretch meant uh, like a stranger or being unhappy. So I don't think Newton was misunderstanding this, but the way now we refer to wretch means um, somebody that's despicable or deplorable. So when a modern person sings that song, sometimes with gusto, they're thinking God's amazing grace saves this horrible person like me that's so unworthy. And that's not the good news of the Bible. Again, going back to last week, do you remember what we talked about in the word tov? When God created us, created you, created me, said it's, it's tov, it's good, it's beautiful. And yes, as we know the story, sin wrecked it and, and, and sin comes in and, and, and dis, distorts and changes things and it, it, it affects us in the deepest ways and God's heart is broken. This is the gospel and puts on flesh and comes and breaks the power of sin and death on the cross and rises again to offer us a pathway of restoration and reformation to become the people he originally created us to be. But at no point in the game does God look down and like, hate us and think that we're unworthy. It's the exact opposite. For God so loved the world, loves driving him to giving his all for us. That's the heart of grace because here's the way to think about it. It's not that we're unworthy. When we see grace and we see the work of Jesus on the cross for it, grace says you are worth it and I am worth it. And if you don't trust me, just look to the cross. Look what the God of the universe, your creator, did to make it possible to to come back into the people that he created us to be. The gospel doesn't dehumanize us. The gospel rehumanizes us. And it's a message that is profoundly good news for the world. In 1737, uh, 26-year-old Moravian missionary George Schmidt arrived in Cape Town, South Africa. He moved to an area called uh, the, the Valley of Baboons, and he set up one of the first missionary stations in Southern Africa. And it was, it was hard toiling. He built a house, he planted a, a little sapling pear tree in the garden, and he began to work with a small group of displaced local folks. And he taught them to read and he write. He taught them to farm so they would have food and he taught them about the good news of Jesus and God's grace. Uh, Five years passed and finally he began to baptize some of uh, the first initial followers of Jesus in that area. And then some of the powers of B came in and and stopped what he was doing and forced him out and and George uh, went back to England. 50 years later, uh, George has passed. The Moravians who originally had sent George sent uh, missionaries back, and they expected to, to, to have to start from scratch, but that was not true. They found the remnants of George's house that he had built, and shockingly, they found now a massive pear tree 
bearing fruit. And soon they begin to encounter local people. Uh, they found a woman uh, who was one of those initial converts who, who George himself had baptized, who was now quite old. And she got so excited and ran and grabbed the Bible that George had given them, handed it to her daughter, who was now a follower of Jesus. Her daughter opened it up and began to read of the grace of God. <laughs> These Moravians are like blown away. Uh, by what was happening. So they, they set up shop there and they worked with this, this thriving group of Jesus followers and the good news began to spread throughout that valley. Uh, news reached the governor of that area who was so impressed by what had, had happened over all these years that he renamed the Valley of Baboons the Valley of Grace. Uh, transfer all the way to 1995. Uh, President Nelson Mandela, having gone through all the horrific stuff in South Africa, a follower of Jesus himself, bringing healing to that country, decided uh, to rename the official residence of the president uh, the Valley of Grace because he wanted the rule and the reign of the president of that country to be ruled by grace. Grace is, man, it's this powerful force. I don't even think we can begin to capture it. It, it doesn't need our help. It's got a life of its own. Grace is the only thing that can save us. Grace is the only thing that can transform us. Grace is the only thing that can tear down walls and, and heal divisions. Grace is the only thing to bring us into vital relationship with God and keep us in vital relationship with God. Grace is the only force, I'm convinced of this, powerful enough to break the chains of ungrace in our relationships with one another, generationally, nation to nation, people group to people group. Grace is the only force powerful enough to keep us together in a world that's coming apart. Uh, we must let grace have its way with us, not in just an initial prayer that we look to Jesus for life, that's important, but we must let grace have its way with us every day of our lives. I want you to, to close your eyes and I want to, um, I kind of want to pray some questions over us as a church. Uh, I was kind of pondering this message and how do I challenge us as a church? Uh, grace, you may or may not know this, but grace is one of our values. You can go to our website and check out our other values. Uh, are we a church of grace? I, I don't know. I hope, <laughs> I pray we made it our value because we want our community to be marked by grace. But this message was a reminder of how imperative it is in this day and age of division and strife and dehumanization that we be a community of grace. So with, with your eyes closed, kind of, I hope these will be provocative questions for you. Maybe you take one of them and, and you allow it to guide your prayers this week or in, guide how you interact with our church and how you get involved. What if we truly became known as a church of grace? What if we truly let grace get a hold of us? What if instead of grace being a one-time gift, Grace became the gift that keeps giving. What if we started each day on our knees before the throne of grace, seeking grace for the day ahead? What if we kept going back to that throne of grace to get mercy and grace as we needed it and we encountered difficulties in our day? What if grace not only saved us, but taught us to say no to ungodliness and made us people eager to do good? What if we actually became agents of grace? What if our single focus became Paul's single focus to testify of the good news of God's grace? 
What if grace became what we are known for instead of what churches are often known for, judgment and division and strife? What if the good news we proclaim wasn't you aren't worthy, but you're worth it? What if the good news was actually good news? What if? Let me pray for us. God, I, 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 I hope those questions prompt stuff in us. I hope they make us uncomfortable. I hope they provoke us to think differently about who you are and, and, and your people and who we're called to be, how we interact as your church and our community. My deepest desire as a pastor of this church is that we would be a community of grace. It's going to take grace to accomplish that, so we ask for it, God. We don't want to be a, a people that see this truncated, narrow gospel of just kind of saying a prayer and just going on and living unchanged lives in a gracious world in a gracious way. We don't want to be a church like God. We want grace to have its way with us fully, that you've totally changed us into who you originally created us to be and that we would become agents of grace and a community of grace for your glory, God. I think if this is a reminder of what can be and, and we lay ourselves before you and, and pray that you would have your way with us and make us the people that you desire us to be. We love you and we praise you. Thank you so much for Jesus, who is the hope of the world and the hope of our lives. We pray in his name. And all God's people said, amen.